Some songs just baffle me. I don't know how anybody in the world could possibly write them and believe them and then sing them. The song uh, on the top of page six of your service order sheet that we're just singing is one of those songs. It utterly baffles me. The guy who wrote it, Horatio Spafford, um, in the 19th century, he was a man whose family was traveling by boat, uh, by ship, um, from Europe to North America. He, they were going ahead of him, and he was going to follow them a couple months later. And his family got caught in a storm. S- ship sank, and he lost his daughters in the midst of the storm. And he received a telegram saying, your daughters have died at sea. And so he got on the quickest boat that he could to cross the ocean. And it's when he got to the point where his daughters died at sea that he penned these words. He said, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. And he goes on to say, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. How is that possible? I don't understand songs like that. And Psalm 58 is the same way for me this whole week. I read it and I don't understand it. David is running for his life. He's hiding in a cave, fearing that he will be killed by King Saul at any moment. And he writes words not only of lament, but of praise. (laughs) You see, Psalm 57 is all about walking with God through the storms of life. And it combines two sorts of responses that we normally don't put together in our own lives, nor do we ever think they should go together very often. It's the response of deep, heartfelt lament over the horror and darkness of a given situation. And deep and heartfelt thanks and praise for his goodness and his mercy and his steadfast love and his faithfulness. And somehow in Psalm 57, I don't understand how, David takes lament and he takes praise and he weaves them and stitches them together and offers them up to the Lord in one song. Psalm 57 speaks to a very personal and practical question that we all have to ask at some point. (laughs) And it's how in the world do we handle times of danger and disaster and distress? What do we do? And so in Psalm 57, David speaks to us from the center of the storm. He's not out of it. He's in the middle of it. And in verses 1 to 6, we see a movement of lament. And then in verses 7 to 11, we see a movement of praise. And so we're going to look at those two movements together. The movement of lament. There are two aspects of lament here. David takes refuge, and then David describes reality. (laughs) He takes refuge first. If you just look at verse 1. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. And note the earnestness and the urgency of his words. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge. Till the storms of destruction 
pass by. Notice how David repeat, repeats his cry for help. He's, he's saying, I'm really in need here, God. <laughs> and he says that he takes refuge. Taking refuge is the vocabulary of trust. <laughs> he's saying, Lord, I'm trusting my life into your care in the midst of very uncertain and very threatening times. And notice how the imagery is not of taking refuge in a cave or in a house or in a fortress. It's taking refuge under the shadow of his wings. Wings. A bird. A hen. I was at uh, a zoo on Vancouver Island, a petting zoo, about a month ago. Showing my daughter animals for the very first time. She was discovering horses and pigs and bunnies and emus and all that good stuff. And we took her to the chicken coop. And there was this hen sitting there. And it looked like not many chicks around her. And as we got closer, the hen moved and disturbed. And she got up. And literally 20 chicks came sprawling out from underneath the hen. And then the hen sat down somewhere. And the chicks quickly went right back under. And we couldn't see them anymore. And it was this amazing thing that wherever the hen went, the chicks would just take refuge under her. And I couldn't believe how many of them could fit under there. And one of the things I realized in that moment as I'm showing Annabelle, and she's just like, doesn't know what's going on, is that this refuge language is, it's about protection and it's about rescue, but it's about so much more than that as well. It's it's about intimacy and nearness and care at the same time. You see, God is both strong and tender in this passage. And he uses his strength and his tenderness and his wings to take his children into protection. And so David comes to him and takes refuge in the midst of the storm. And notice how God's strength and tenderness does not keep David from ever encountering storms in his life. That's not what God promises here. Rather, it's in the midst of the storm that God will be his refuge. And so David takes refuge. But he's not happy with just vague notions of God as a sort of hen with wings. He goes on in verses 2 to 3 and gets very specific about who this God is. He says in verse 2, I cry out to God most high, a reference to his power. To God who fulfills his purpose for me, reference to his purpose. He will send from heaven and save He will put to shame him who tramples on me. He will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. Do you notice what David is doing in the midst of the storm? He's not just taking refuge in God and saying, have mercy on me, God. Oh, have mercy on me. Help me. He's doing that. But he is also reminding himself of who this God is in whom he takes refuge. He's consciously remembering who this God is. He's merciful and he's powerful and he's full of steadfast love and faithfulness. And all those words, if you actually look at where they come from, you realize that the time that they show up first in the Bible is all around the Exodus event. When God delivers his people out of oppression in Egypt and he says, I am the Lord, the Lord, a God who is gracious and merciful. A slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. 
And then you see there's a new dynamic here. Not only is David thinking about who God is, David is remembering what God has done in the past. And that's what is anchoring him in the midst of the storm. (laughs) He's saying, God, you've done this in the past. This is who you are. And now in the midst of the storm, I'm going to trust that you are that God now. And I'm going to rest my life on you. And so he clings to who God has been and who God is and who God will be. And friends, this is so important for us. Because if you've ever been in the midst of a great time of suffering or pain or affliction or hostility, you know that the first thing you doubt when you're in that place is God's character. We start to doubt God's power. God, are you really powerful to do anything about this? Can you really deliver? We start to doubt then God's goodness normally. God, do you even care to do anything about this? And what can happen to us in that place is we can be led to a place of despair and hopelessness or cynicism and resentment. If we let that doubt get too far, and then we have a very difficult time taking refuge in God. And David knows this, so he pauses and he takes time to remind himself and us of exactly who this God is that is his refuge in the midst of the storm. I will cry out to God most high, verse 2, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send and he will save and he will put to shame him who tramples me. And God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. So I take refuge in you. David takes refuge, and then he encourages us to describe reality. See, one of the wonderful things about the Christian faith is that taking refuge in God doesn't mean we have to ignore the really difficult and hard and dark areas of life. We can actually face them head on. And we're actually encouraged in verse 4 and 6 to express in vivid and detailed imagery what we're experiencing and feeling in our given situation to God. God cares about the details. And so you see in verse 4, he says, My soul is in the midst of lions. He's talking to God. I lie down among fiery beasts. The children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp words. Notice that imagery. (laughs) David's saying, I'm in the midst of a lion's den right now, God. I'm surrounded by ravenous animals, and they are attacking and devouring me with their words. And then verse 6, he uses a different image. He says, they set a net for me for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. There the image is of him being an animal who is being hunted. He's saying, these people that are coming after me are hunting me, and they want to use their power to destroy and harm me. And God is saying, and David is saying this to God because he wants God to know how desperate the situation is and how distressed he actually is in the midst of it. So he tells God. And I think this is very important for us to recognize that lament like this is very important in the Christian life. It's important. 
Now, lament is very different from many of the experiences that we commonly have in these situations. Uh, we can default to a place of self-pity, and lament is not self-pity. It's not saying, I'm an irredeemable victim of my circumstances, woe is me. <laughs> lament is not revenge, saying, this is unjust, I'm going to take charge and get even. Lament is not defeatism, this is just the way things are, I can't do anything about it, whatever. And lament is not stoicism, I'm just not going to let it get me down, I'll be happy, clappy, I'll be fine. See, lament faces the facts, but it doesn't take things into its own hands, either actively or passively. It takes things to God and says, God, this situation is not the way it's supposed to be in the world. It's not the way it's supposed to be in my life. God, I'm bringing it to your attention. Not that God didn't know about it, but David's engaging God with it. And this is so important to the Bible that some 47, almost 50% of the Psalms, over 70, are some form of individual or communal lament. People saying, how long, O Lord? Help me, O God. Make speed to save me. Do you see this situation, O Lord? Act. And so the psalm encourages us in this movement of lament to take refuge in God first, to remember who he is, and then to describe to him just how desperate, desperate and difficult the situation actually is. And that's good. And that's right. And then the astonishing thing is that right next to that movement of lament, David places a movement of praise. And there's two aspects to this praise. He, he sings, and then he prays. He sings, <laughs> verse 7 to 10. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens and your faithfulness to the clouds. It's important to realize that in this singing, there's no evidence in our psalm that David's situation has actually gotten any better. There are a lot of songs where all of a sudden God intervenes and the lament turns to praise. But here, there's no evidence in the psalm itself, I think, that we can say that David has been delivered. He's still in the midst of the storm. He's still in the lion's den. He's still in the thick of it. And David sings praise in the middle of it. <laughs> and his heart is steady and firm and peaceful somehow. Verse 7. My heart is steadfast, O Lord. My heart is steadfast. It's the sense of being anchored and firm. And David's words are buoyant and confident and joyful. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. It's the sense in which he is orchestrating all of creation to sing praise to God. And he says, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praise to you among the nations. And the question I want to ask is, how in the world is that possible? How can David do that? 
why would he sing praise in the middle of the storm before resolution, before deliverance, before vindication? Verse 10 gives us the reason. It says, For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, O God, your faithfulness to the clouds. Friends, I had tried to think of a way fancier answer to that question, how David does this. And the only answer I came up with in the psalm is that because David knows who God is. He, he knows God's steadfast love and he knows his faithfulness so deeply that he can still praise God in the midst of a horrible storm. And I don't think this is just vague sentimental hope or just a, a particularly strong will. Somehow this has to do with the inherent worth and dignity and firmness and consistency of God's character. And it's often one of the last things that we feel like doing when we're in the midst of the storm and something goes wrong, right? We don't want to praise. That's not our gut reaction. I mean, just think about innumerable circumstances that are probably in this room. Uh, some of us probably have kids that have gone astray and our hearts are broken because of it. Family members who have gotten cancer and were devastated because of it. Friends who have turned their back on us and were wounded because of it. Co-workers that have it in for us and they're after us and we feel threatened because of it. And people who gossip about us and criticize us and we're alienated because of it. And the question is, how do you sing praises in these circumstances? How in the world does your soul cry out to God, great is your steadfast love and your faithfulness? How do you do it? I don't know. (laughs) Other than just staring in the face of God and saying, God, convince me that you are full of steadfast love and faithfulness and mercy. Convince me of it because I'm not convinced, God. So show me, enlighten my mind, soften my heart, make it genuine, Lord. Speak to me. I think that's the only way. It's just to beg for it. And David does this sort of begging. He moves from singing to praying. And this is the final thing he does in his movement of praise. In verses 5 and 11. He repeats the same thing twice. He prays out, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. In verse 5, he says this in the context of his lament movement. So it's a prayer of defiant faith. (laughs) And at the end, he says it in the context of his praise movement. It's a prayer of grateful love. And one thing that this shows us is that deeper than disaster and danger and distress, at the very heart of David's desires is a deep desire for God to be glorified. For him to be glorified and lifted up. He wants God's name to be made great over all the earth. And how does God do that? God makes his name great over all the earth for showing himself to be the one who he is. The one who delivers the oppressed. Who's a refuge for the wanderer. 
who's a savior for the lost, who's a healer for the sinner, and who's the gatherer of the exiles. You see, friends, when he cries out to God in verse 2 and says, God will fulfill his purposes for me, and then he prays, be exalted, O God, above the heavens, let your glory be over all the earth. That prayer of for God to fulfill his purposes for his people and for God to be glorified is one in the same thing. Because it's as God fulfills his purposes for his people that he magnifies to the whole world the beauty of his character and the consistency and the constancy of it. And then the knowledge of his glory gets filled over the whole earth. And so that's why verse 5 is most beautifully and most fully fulfilled when Jesus is lifted up at the right hand of the Father. And the Holy Spirit is poured out on the disciples. And in the midst of great suffering and great distress and lots of hostility, the knowledge of the glory of Jesus Christ is spread to all the earth. And people come to know the wonder and the beauty of his name. In the end, friends, I think the only way that we can genuinely lament and genuinely praise, as this psalm calls us to, with any sort of honesty, (laughs) is if we fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.